Welcome to Journeys of Teaching. I'm Aaron R. Gearhart. This week, we will explore the journey of Dr. Heather H. Woodley, a clinical associate professor of TESOL bilingual education and world language education at NYU. Heather holds a PhD in urban education from the Graduate Center City University of New York. I connected with Heather through a Facebook group I belong to called Educators for Anti-Racism. Paper to your right. That's like amazing. It's oh my gosh. That's what wow. happens when you teach online. You have to find really cool wallpaper. Oh my gosh. My students have seen the back of my sofa at my house a lot the past year and a half. <laughs> we Yeah, we had to get fun. Um, so this is what we're doing. Right on. We get a little things, right? So is NYU like fully online still or where so, are y'all at? Long story short, I actually teach in a teacher residency program. So okay. I've been doing Zoom classes for six years. So you knew what you were doing. So when when like shit went down, I was kind of like, this is my moment. But wait a second, my kids are home. <laughs> <laughs> On this episode, we will hear Heather's stories about entering the teaching profession as a means of combating Muslim backlash and Islamophobia in a post 9-11 New York. On the following two episodes, we will hear Heather's stories about the importance of community and belonging in education for students, as well as their families. We will also learn about how Heather leverages language and literacy as a means of empowering students focusing on their assets rather than deficits. When I spoke with Heather in October of 2021, we got into her motivation for getting into teaching. As you will hear, her original career path was focused on international education and development work, but after the events of September 11th, 2001, she shifted her plans. All right. Was it a certain experience that inspired uh, you? It seemed like it, you had the was, story queued up. It was history and current events. Okay. So I'm gonna take you back a little bit. Right. To Heather's like life. Um, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a great, diverse Northeast place. Um, we I, I grew up in a Jewish home, which is very much the minority mm-hmm. in Rhode Island. Um, and I have some Middle Eastern roots and there's a lot of rhetoric in the Jewish community. Um, unfortunately, some oppressive rhetoric about Arab communities and Muslim communities. And I, from the get-go, was the challenger, right? Um, My parents raised me to question everything. They are that generation. So I was like, well, why? Like, I didn't know any Arab or Muslim people. And I was like, this is some BS. Like, if you look at history, we're occupying other people's land in Israel. And this doesn't feel right. And never again means never again for all of us. So I was like 15 and I was like, I'm going to solve the Middle East peace crisis. Right. (laughs) Um, So I started taking classes in Arabic. I went to college. I was like bright eyed and idealistic. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to do international education, international development work. And I'm going to work with women and and literacy and family planning. I was really into like women, reproductive rights and global family planning support um, and all this stuff. And I went to Morocco my junior year abroad, got my Arabic better. And then I was all set to, um, I applied for a Fulbright in Morocco for the year after I graduated to look at family planning programs and women literacy. I had accepted to go for my master's in Oxford for international development. And boom, senior year, 9-11 happens. 
And I am one of the only people doing like, quote unquote, Arab studies. It was this mishmash major that I was like part of the religion department, part of the history department, part of Soch and 9-11 happens. And next thing I know, I'm getting letters from the from the CIA. Do you want to do a fast track program in translation and counterterrorism? And I was like, no, fools, this is not why I'm here. Like, I'm not in this work to help the CIA, you know, and my whole trajectory of everything was like, what do I do? I just saw this incredible backlash on the Muslim community in New York and the US. And all of a sudden Islamophobia is rampant. Like my peoples are being, um, you know, everything from spit out on the street to vandalize. And I was like, this is not right. And I thought about like everything that had made me happy in my life was being a camp counselor, tutoring, every little bit of work I did with kids. And I was like, you know what? I was going to do that in the Middle East and the Arab world, but no, no, no. I got to do it back in New York. We need I got to like yeah. be the teacher that speaks Arabic and brings Arabic into the classroom. I want to be the teacher for the Muslim immigrant youth, for my Arab students who are experiencing this whole new New York backlash, this whole new world that has racialized them and is just flooded with Islamophobia. So from an internet cafe, remember internet cafes? I do. I had to use one in Spain one time to call home when I was traveling. So I was in an internet cafe. I applied to the New York City teaching fellows because I didn't have a, a degree in in teaching and I needed right. like fast track. I was like, I'm not sitting for two years of a master's and I'm not paying for a master's. I want to teach tomorrow. And that was it. And then I, my plane landed at JFK from Morocco and I was in an interview the next week. And then three weeks later, I was starting a master's and doing summer school student teaching. So I did, so it was a high needs area to be TESOL. So I went for the TESOL masters. Right. Um, and I was a student teacher that summer. And by September, I had a class of 35 seventh graders. 35. Oh my gosh. My biggest class ever was 26. So I can't even. Fathom. Yeah, 35 seventh graders and 34 desks, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> we will hear about Heather's time teaching in Washington, D.C. in the next episode. But for now, let's fast forward to when she returned to New York and began working as an advisor in the New York Teaching Fellows Program. Did y'all move back towards? Then we came back to New York. Yeah. Okay. Came back to New York while I was in D.C. I applied. So long. So I was part of the New York City Teaching Fellows from the beginning. Right. When I graduated for that in the summer, I started teaching for the New York City Teaching Fellows. So I was what was called a fellow advisor. So I was working with brand new teachers. Okay. And I was like, this is great. I was like, the only thing cooler than like hanging out with high school kids talking about books and middle school kids is to hang out with people who want to teach talking about teaching. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do I make this my life? And someone was like, oh, you need a doctorate. And I was like, oh, I need a doctorate. Yeah. So I was like, what is the least oppressive way I can get a PhD? <laughs> <laughs> Um, And I looked into programs and I was reading about the CUNY Graduate Center and there was very much an activist mission. There was a new program that just started in 2000 called Urban Education, which really looked at intersections of equity and racial justice and socioeconomic justice and education. And I was like, this is it. This is it. I knew it would be fully funded. I think I also applied to like teachers college and NYU, but I knew I wanted the CUNY graduate center. Mm-hmm. I loved like they were small. They were very community driven. Right. And 
I started there and I think it was like, because I had asked one of my old professors. So we have a system in New York city called CUNY, which is the city university of New York. We also have SUNY, which is the state university of New York. That's the one I've heard of. Yeah. Okay. So SUNY is state university and you see them in like upstate and Albany and Buffalo, but then CUNY is city university. And that is a very, I don't know, like dope system. It is just so like it's throughout the city. You can get really quality education for like low, low prices. Mm -hmm. You might've heard of Hunter college. Yeah. That's part of CUNY. Okay. Okay. Queens college, Lehman college, Brooklyn college. So I, so when you do the New York city teaching fellows, you're usually slotted at one of the CUNYs because the city is paying for your masters. Okay. And they get more per credit at a CUNY. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I had already been to city. So I did my master's city college and I went back to one of my professors and I was like, Oh, can you write me a recommendation for my doctoral program? And she was like, sure. Do you want to adjunct while you're at it? And I was like, yes, I do. Cause I need a paycheck and <laughs> experience. So my first semester in my doc program, I was adjuncting in my old master's program. That's awesome. Within the CUNY system in city college. So the work that I'm doing now um, is focusing on family, community, and anti-racist classroom spaces. Okay. Okay. So I really want to think about how teachers and students together can collaboratively make anti-racist classroom spaces, specifically for multilingual learners, because so often we'll get, we'll hear people say things like, Oh, they just need to learn English first. We'll worry about that social justice stuff later. Right. Or they just need to learn. It's interrelated. We can't approach it that way. Exactly. And these are kids that are being incredibly racialized. Some of them are experiencing race in a new way that they never have. Right. Right. I mean, you move from the DR to New York and all of a sudden you're black, but you thought you've always said you were Dominican. But now people think you're this and people want to put you in one one pocket rather than look at like a holistic identity. Not to mention, like we have students immigrating from so many different countries and we also have students who are multilingual learners who are born in the U.S. and do not have an immigrant experience Mm -hmm. in New York City. About 50 percent of the kids who qualify for language services were born in the U.S. Um, so there's also so much linguicism that we're trying to, you know, fight against. So another, so that's a big part of my work, but also really looking at family engagement, family empowerment, and how families are being treated and integrated and talked about and talked with specifically multilingual families, but all families. And I've always cared about families, but I'm being real honest with you. Being a parent has opened up so many new ideas about how schools treat family. So for example, I have a standard rule in my class that a grade is a grade when you decide you're done. So something is due and you have to hand in on time. But if you got a, I don't know, a seven out of 10, do it again till you get a 10 out of 10 because you're not learning with a seven out of 10. You haven't learned it. Keep going till you get the 10 out of 10. I use the badge based system in my courses and they don't know what to make of it when they get to me. Cause they're like, wait, I can like have a second chance. It's like, and a third and a fourth, just know the semester ends at this date and I got to turn a grade in, but still yep. let's, let's cool. work together. I, I try to like transfer that to like, okay, didn't that feel nice? How can you integrate that in the way you assess your students? Yeah. And don't you feel like you learned it? I'm not doing you a service by giving you a seven out of 10. Right. Because what I'm saying is I'm okay with you not getting it. And I'm not okay with you not getting it. My job is to get you an A. (laughs) 
It's like, I'm not here to give you points. I'm here to help you grow and to be a better educator. And so, yeah, yeah, so I try to do that. I start every class with like kind of a social emotional Mm check-in. However, I try to model what I want, what I think would be quality pedagogy for them, which is so wild how much it's not in teacher ed. I I started doing those check-ins this semester. It's so weird how parallel this is with my experience. And it's like the world's greatest irony is when teacher ed classes are like boring and lectury. I've had students who have legit said to me, I just got lectured at for an hour about how engaging I should be. And I was like, you poor thing. Like that is... That is like the ultimate hypocrisy. If I was a student, I would, I don't even know. It's not you know? very inspiring. No. And you have so to be fairly inspired to like be, to have enough grit and resilience in our line of work. Seriously. And it's also amazing. And I don't want to like knock the world of teacher ed, but there is a substantial amount of people in teacher ed who have not been teachers. What I enjoyed so much from my conversation with Heather was her laser focus on leveraging education as a means of combating oppression and empowering students in a society and within contexts that are often designed with opposing goals. What Heather called quality pedagogy truly involves viewing students as more than data points and test scores, but rather as human beings with their own stories to tell, their own dreams and goals to pursue, their own authentic interests, their own cultural values, and despite what dominant discourses may say, their own educational assets. We will explore this notion on the following two episodes of this podcast. You can follow Heather on Twitter at Prof Heather W. That's at P-R-O-F-H-E-A-T-H-E-R-W. My contact information is in the episode description. This is Journeys of Teaching. I am Aaron R. Gearhart, and thank you for listening.